You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Guillermo del Toro is the director of Kronos, Hellboy, Blade II, The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy II, The Golden Army, and Pan's Labyrinth. With Chuck Hogan, he wrote The Strain. Their new novel is The Fall. Thank you for speaking with me, My pleasure. And thank you for omitting Mimic. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about Uh, Mimic. I I wish I did. (laughs) This new novel is the middle novel in a trilogy. Mm-hmm. And this is a difficult novel to write and to pull off as well as, as you, the two of you did. Mm-hmm. Talk about this, the problems of writing a novel that essentially doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an ending. Well, we, you know, when, when I originally mapped out the, the three acts of this story, so to speak, I, I, I had it very clear where each chapter, each book was going to end. And, and the only thing that we... Uh, corrected or, or reinforced in both the books is to give a sense that uh, something either winning or losing something major uh, was the closing uh, movement in the book. In the first book, you get a sense of uh, the master escaping, but them having to be able to slow the plague, perhaps get uncontestable proof. You get a sense of um, a resolution in the first book. The second book, what we knew is we needed to kill somebody that the audience cared for so that you felt that our team was in the losing side. And we do that, but we also wanted to give our heroes uh, some advantage. So the the, the technique is no different than the silent film cliffhangers. You, You leave the cliffhanger with the Lone Ranger hanging by two fingers in a horrible precipice, about to die, and then they snap back, and every advantage that you need to lose, they lose, and every advantage you need them to gain, they gain. And 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 we did that. We we the uncontest the uncontestable uncontestable proof of the uh, vampirism plague goes away. Everything goes downhill, and uh, our heroes are grappling with something. <clears throat> frankly, uh, impossible to grapple with. And, and we wanted... Uh, the second book in every trilogy is the what they call the losing book. It's where everybody is... The circumstances are dire. And, and you end up with a huge cliffhanger and everybody's hopes are def, uh, deflated. And, uh, you know, you can go trilogy by trilogy and this is almost true of every one of them. You know, one of the things that I think that you guys did really well in this book is to uh, create this piece of uh, uh, literature, the Osito Lumen. This is yeah, a classic you. part of, of every kind of uh, uh, Lovecraftian and Borgesian uh, Bor- uh, yes. uh, work. So talk about this and talk about the influence of Borges on this work because I think that's really, uh, that's very interesting. <laughs> I think that anybody that loves Borges is going to try to burn me alive for <laughs> quoting him on a on a on a piece so full of pulp, but I must say that uh, the two authors that constantly fascinate me because they uh, talk with great erudition about books that don't exist many times are Borges and Lovecraft, and and uh, 
and I, I'm very proud uh, to say that I, I, I single-handedly went and created the Oxidolumen or Oxidolumen because uh, I wanted to create a book that seemed real. So I, I created this whole fictional backstory uh, as carefully as I could, as plausibly as I could. I mean, obviously there is a, a couple of licenses I take in the creation of the book, but uh, to see it pass from hand to hand, to being being created by a rabbi uh, from Mesopotamian tablets and being uh, eventually auctioned and bought by John Dee, uh, and uh, you know passing through the the affair of the poisonings in the French court. I mean, it's really a fascinating. I I'm mixing periods of history that have always intrigued me. I'm I'm obsessed with John Dee. I'm, uh, I, I always uh, loved uh, the idea of Madame de Montespan and, and her role as a sort of a magical advisor, uh, sort of witch in the in the affair of the poisons in the in the French court. I I, 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 I tried to mix all those things together, and and uh, the idea of the pages being lined with silver came from Chuck. Uh, Chuck said, "What if they cannot read it because all the." You know, how you get a paper cut. Well, what if the paper cut had silver? I thought, well, that was brilliant. But, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, I, I would not go as far as... I, I would say I apologize to Borges for, <laughs> for quoting him, if anything. Well, you know, speaking of Borges, you know, I was thinking of the character of the general in uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. And that just seemed like a character right out of Borges. Yes, well, again, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not claiming... Uh, Borges, uh, anything. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying I am influenced mm -hmm. by him, for good or bad for him, but for good for me. Uh, it, it is, exactly. It's like, a, a, you know, a right-wing general in Argentina or a right-wing general in a fascist in Spain, but ultimately a, a character that is obsessed by the battlefield, that dreams of dying in the battlefield, that, that, that has the shadow of his, of his father, having been a war hero, and he keeps this clock, this watch, obsessively clean to record the day he dies because he wants to be remembered, which is another Borges obsession, mm -hmm. memory. And clocks. Clocks and so forth, and labyrinths. <laughs> of course. So, you know, yes. I, I mean, I guess I guess I, I, I wear my influences on my sleeve, and I, I gladly admit to them. I, I, I obviously think that uh, Borges is profound, uh, Borges is um, eternal in a way, and Borges is a master of ideas and concepts. I, I really love emotions, and I love uh, sort of the the rapture of of um, uh, pulpish emotions. You know, I, I, I so I, I I don't know if I can claim any anything profound, but yes, he is him, Marcel Schwab, uh, Dickens, Oscar Wilde. Uh, Carson McCullers, Truman Capote, Mark Twain, um, you know, uh, Victor Hugo. Uh, there's many, many authors that have a bearing on on the way I write. But by the same token, I'm influenced by really pulpish people. I mean, I love Frederick Brown, Richard Madison, Lovecraft, Algernon Blackwood, Arthur Machen, uh, Lord Donsony, Fritz Lieber. Uh, so you know, I I I I really in my life 
in my reading and my movie watching and my food, I distinguish between two things, things I love and things I don't. I, I, I don't aspire to only eat caviar. I now and then can talk to you about the virtues of a really great burger for 30 minutes. Tommy's hamburgers. Yeah. I actually, <laughs> I have to say, when I come down to Southern California, that's a that's, the pilgrimage I make. I made that's it this a very, morning. That's a very good choice. And, and, and I think that uh, this is the same. I, what I, what I, I've never read a, a, a book because I have to. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never had to read a book. I, if I open Moby Dick and it grabs me, I read it, I finish it, and I am passionate about it for the rest of my life. If I open another book, I will not say which one, but the, and it has happened that some books that are eminently, uh, you know, they, they would fill huge gaps in my intellectual formation. I, 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 can't, I can't get past the first 10 pages, or, I, or I'm page 40 and I haven't understand any, understood anything, and I, I just say enough. Hmm. So, you know, these are people I enjoy. Well, one of the things I think that you do uh, very well in this book is to integrate um, biology and emotion, and you use the your the, you create these kind of like scenes of almost surgical terror. Yeah. Yet they're filled with this kind of emotion, and, and I think that's something that's very interesting. That's that's a hard thing to pull off. So I like you to talk about creating characters that we really care about. F. Uh, Zach, Nora, uh, even even Kelly, mm-hmm. and and the master. It's interesting that we we like these these horrifically evil demons. They're they're fun to be around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, because our world is so uh, drab. You know, we live in a world where uh, politically everybody's accusing everybody of everything. You know, it's it's really nasty and it's really pointless. And, and, and you end up with uh, the inability to judge the world in, a, in, 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 in absolutes. Everything is a model, pathetic gray. But in fiction, in fiction, you can speculate about absolute evil, for example, uh, absolute corruption. And in the case of uh, The Strain and the Fall, I tried to uh, find absolute values there, like in The, in the Billionaire. Uh, Eldridge Palmer, who is absolutely, totally corrupt, uh, beyond any salvation. I, I happen to to believe that most billionaires are not good people. <laughs> <laughs> I got that. Yeah, I, but 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 I, I but I also uh, try to portray him as a cunning, intelligent man, and with with Chuck uh, creating the master with Chuck has been fantastic because. We each bring colors to to that character that mm-hmm. that make him as a presence, as a physical presence, uh, truly uh, an imposing uh, imposing uh, creature. But uh, as an entity, he's so intelligent, so fast, so smart, so powerful, so uh, you know, full of um, great tactics. You know, uh, that, that is fascinating to write them from the inside. And from the inside, I mean not only emotionally, but I mean biologically. We, one of the approaches I've taken uh, in my movies and my work is to always be curious about biology. Jim Cameron jokingly says to me that if there's no autopsy in one of my movies, he, he can't believe his mind. And it's true, I have autopsies in Mimic, uh, Blade, 
uh, Hellboy, uh, you name it. I mean, you go on and on and on. And, and I like, because as a kid, I always was curious about the guts of the monster. I always wondered what gland did uh, the dragons have in their necks to mix gas and, and fire and create that magma. I mean, I, I always I was curious about that, about the, the, the biology. I always was worried about where did Godzilla left uh, his droppings <laughs> and, and, and what did people have to do with them? I've, you know, because everybody talks about Godzilla destroying Tokyo, but cleaning Tokyo after Godzilla has been there for more than an hour <laughs> must have been a horrible thing to do. You know, like, so, you know, I, 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 and uh, that, that sort of perverse interest in the biology of monsters finds the way, its ways into the books. This is biology I figured out, or I've been figuring out since I was 11. I'll show you the book uh, that I read first about vampirism, and we'll check the date, and then we'll know how old I was. But I was around 10 or 11, I think. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, and I think that your ability to pull yourself back to that age really helps inform the character of Zach. Yes. Who, who's such a, a, a great kid in this, in this book because he's not super precocious because no. he, he wants that safety. He wants that instant solution. He's an earnest boy. Mm-hmm. You know, he is very earnest. And, and I wrote, one of the things I wrote in the first book that I'm the proudest of is that scene of Zach in the window mm-hmm. that is entirely autobiographical. That, that is exactly how I was in my grandmother's window on the second floor. And that, that exact scene, exactly as it's described, happened to me. Except I didn't see a corpse walking down the street, but I thought about it, and I tried to write Zach from from that point of view. And uh, and uh, you know, I, I must say that that uh, childhood is very accessible to me. I I, I really find emotionally that I, I'm still uh, as complex and uncomplicated at the same time as a kid. Mm-hmm. I I still derive great joy uh, from assembling a model kit. Sometimes as much, if not more, mm-hmm. than making a movie, <laughs> you know. So, so I, I really are opening up a, a, a package and laying out the the pieces of the model kit, and you know, preparing to cut them and sand them and paint them. It's really, uh, it, I, I become a, a child, and 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 I enjoy that. You know, uh, one of the things that is uh, so interesting about this book is the the plotting. Uh, you bring in a, a, this great mix of really high tech. From the beginning, we had almost a, a CSI mm-hmm. meets vampires, and here we get uh, our our most lethal tech is is examined and mm-hmm. unleashed. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to talk about using that the complexity of our technology to evoke a kind of deep supernatural terror, because I think that's what happens when we find when we uh, are confronted with the results of what we can, our own handiwork? Well, you know, I think that uh, at the end of the day, our, our brains are a 21st century in many ways, but our souls are medieval. You know, we live in the dark ages spiritually still. I think that uh, when, you, uh, when you think about how easy it is to provoke absolute social 
decomposition. In in the story of uh, in the history of blackouts in America, in the 70s, in the 80s, the riots in LA, uh, it's incredibly easy for us to devolve into absolute savagery, and 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 the 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 way, you know we have substituted praying for googling we literally pray with google we we ask for wisdom by with a search engine and yet uh when when all is said and done we are superstitious we are a superstitious lot and when somebody talks about an epidemic a viral epidemic people revert to the dark ages they they wear these silly masks that they don't even understand what they do but they wear them and they... The mask of the Red Death. I never thought about it, that. It That's what it is. But it, it is. We are. We are living there. I mean, uh, to be absolutely honest, most of the precautions before you board a plane, they're almost ritualistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are. They have proven again and again to be useless and useful at the same time. So people go through them. But, you know, uh, what is what exactly uh, does that ritual do? I mean... We we ultimately do it out of fear. We do it because we fear terrorists with the same uh, blind horror that we fear virus, a viral epide- epidemic and these things. And if you imagine yourself as a modern man in a dark part of the woods with no cell phone access, with no car, you immediately become a caveman. You immediately start praying to whatever you believe in, and any noise coming from any direction becomes magnified by your fear, as it would uh, happen to you without technology in the Middle Ages. So the idea on the strain and the fall is that we are a civilization that would fall really quickly, really fast, and uh, and that all this technology that we posit uh, as as a saving. Uh, Tool, you know, like the the CSI technology, UV lights, uh, DNA analysis, uh, all these things ultimately are useless when you when you're facing a wave of spiritual corruption as strong as the master, the, this vampire, and and we are powerless to do anything. And I love I love uh, uh, Quaron. Alfonso Quaron gave me a lot of uh, uh, chagrin. He read. He loves the novels, and he. He got the fall in, in galleys. He said, I got to know how it ends. And he called me really angry, like in the middle of the night. And I said, what's going on? He said, I, spoiler ahead, as they say. So turn off your radio if you haven't read it. But he said, why did you kill Eldridge Palmer so quickly? You know, I wanted him to suffer. I hated that guy. And, and the master just disposes of him so swiftly. And I said to him, that's the whole point. The whole point is that uh, ultimately... The tools of the master are tools that I'm, he has been operating with since Mesopotamian times. You know, he's not going to hire a lawyer or all this all this perceived power that the billionaire has is useless because he's ultimately a weak, fragile old man, and the master just pops his head like a tick. And 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 this is that truly medieval, almost um, caveman-like simplicity. You know, the master just uh, is a single, is a vector, is a straight line crossing a, 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 through through everything that is civilized. And I, I, there is a fascination in a character like that, a character that will not be stopped. 
a character who can easily simply undermine that tech the technology that protects us is also our achilles heel yes and 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 uh, a, a creature that as we will find out in the third book is uh beyond natural and beyond uh ancient the origins of the vampires which are yet to be revealed in the in the third book and they're hinted at in the fall are the most interesting part of the trilogy for me so hopefully I'm really looking forward to it. And that's one of the things that when you start into this book and we start to see the divisions between within the vampire realm, that it's, it's such a great plot complicating point and, and it's somewhat unexpected. Mm -hmm. So we just go, oh, my God, this is a lot more complicated than we ever thought. Talk about um, creating these kind of layers of conflict, because at the beginning we have just you know, the humans versus what uh, a disease that has a brain. Mm -hmm. um, now we find that the disease brain is had parts of it are fighting itself. Well, the, the idea was to create two, two, two layers to vampiric society. One is a really small group of vampires that essentially have decided the, the, we will call them the aristocrats, you know, <laughs> not to not to evoke that horrible joke. <laughs> <laughs> but actually like the aristocracy of vampirism mm -hmm. where they they only selectively uh, transfer the gift of immortality to people that are in positions of power and thus have power over banking, politics, wars. And they keep a very a careful balance how many humans, uh, the rate of humans and vampires to keep themselves secret, happy, and uh, and alive and then you have this the youngest of them all which is this ancient creature anyway which is the master and that is just that he just loves the sound of death and the smell of death and he is um, a completely existential young turk that that is that is the rebel and that has been cloaking himself by concealing his power all these years and they thought they had destroyed him and uh, and finally reveals himself and and kills the old guard, you know. And so you know the, the the politics there are are very very simple. I mean, the hungry guy that the that will not play by the old rules. You can see it on Wall Street, or you can see it on on Vampire Glore, which are very similar, by the way. Now, I love at the in the opening of the book, you talk about uh, two stages of disease: mm -hmm. denial. Mm -hmm. and the search for blame. And mm -hmm. I think those, uh, do those roughly equivalent to the first two books? The first book would be denial, denial and the second book is search for, blame. search for blame. That's an interesting way of reading it. I mean, what what we were trying to, to, to say is that uh, I ultimately think both books are very mm, political in a way about, about the way they approach our society. They're very critical mm -hmm. of how alarmingly banal or life life is and 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 we 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 think that you know obviously immediately any any reaction to terrorism economical crisis uh, spiritual crisis whatever you you immediately go into denial and then you look for culprits and and as the book says the immigrants are immediately paraded and uh, the left wing or the right wing or the you know the others and and in the in the in the the beauty of the book or the 
uh, is for me that there is no one else to blame but us because of our incredible arrogance as the dominant species of the planet. And and the vampires, you know, there was that old saying, the best trick that the devil ever did is uh, to to have people not believe in him. And and this applies to vampires, obviously, too. And, and Goldman Sachs as well. Yes, <laughs> we do believe in Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, I love you know, the theme of, of Satrakian. Mm -hmm. And he's, the in many ways, the beating heart of this book. Yes. And he has an obsession with hearts. He, he has a problem with his own heart. Yes. But he has a heart, an extra heart as well. In a jar. In a jar. Yes. <laughs> I love that kind of mirror image. So talk about, um, and, and because he's a, a powerfully emotional character, one of the things I think that is 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 that you guys do Bringing in World War II and the Holocaust mm -hmm. and a Holocaust survivor mm -hmm. is a very dicey proposition. Yes. Something that you could easily, you know, seem to be trivializing, yes. something extremely horrific. And I, yes. and I don't think it comes off that way at all. It comes off mm -hmm. exactly as you, I would guess, intend to lend the whole book a, a real gut punch of power. Yes. And talk about immersing yourself in that kind of awfulness to create this the this emotional character who is the the beating heart of the book well from the get-go we knew because uh, the third book explains the origin of vampirism and it it was born in a great holocaust in the in the ancient times and and we knew that we we knew we were heading to that so we took very much uh, risk but, but that I have taken in the past with Devil's Backbone and Hellboy and uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which I think that, uh, which is to take a um, fable, a fantastical element, and marrying it to a period in history that seems to inform uh, the story. And that and that the fable illuminates the historical period somehow. So when we decided that these vampires that were born in a holocaust, in great pain, they would nest in places of great pain. They would smell and feel pain and go towards it. So they, they nested in the slaughterhouses. They nested in the uh, bathtub of 9-11. They nested in the holocaust. Uh, in in a concentration camp in the ruins of a church, this and that, uh, because essentially they they that's how they sustain themselves. Uh, they feel themselves at home because they were born in 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 pain, and 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 uh, I thought it was really interesting to to have a horrible scene with a vampire in the middle of a situation where actually what humans were doing was more horrific. You know, and Cedrakian reflects on that because Cedrakian is an interesting character that I write uh, very close to my heart because I'm very much like like him, like Abraham Cedrakian. He's a guy that loses all faith in humanity because he's seeing the worst of it, and then he faces the absolute evil of the master, and he comes to a very logical conclusion, which is, if there is absolute evil, there must be in the universe absolute good. You know, which is an old, uh, a very, very uh, cabalistic 
uh, proposition. You know, he says, if the, if I just faced the absolute black, there must be the absolute white somewhere circling. And he, uh, as he escapes the concentration camp after the rebellion, he is also aided by invisible hands of other prisoners, other 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 men that were liberated that help him up and he realizes that he never know he never knew who saved him in the same way that he he was pushed by anonymous forces of history into into this horrible place and and he realizes that mankind is is both the worst and the best we have in this world and 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 you know you use these things to to inform the characters and the and the struggle, I think that the struggle in a in a book like this, in a in a situation like this, is that at the worst of times you see the best of humanity and the worst at the same time. Is if you think of any big crisis, you 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 talk about heroes and villains always. Extreme circumstances uh, breathe extreme reactions from humans. You know, you talk about the extremes, and this is something that really interests me. You operate in the extremes, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking of the general um, when there's a scene in that in Pan's Labyrinth where he's slicing open his face, and, mm-hmm. and it's and it's completely realistic. It's something mm-hmm. we can just imagine and feel every mm-hmm. second happening. Mm-hmm. You operate in the fantastic, and I'm thinking of the creatures of Pan's Labyrinth mm-hmm. or the scenes on on the underground train when it's swarming with vampires mm-hmm. and there's these feelers. Mm-hmm. And you operate with the extremely fantastic, where and I'm thinking of, of the the gentleman in Pan's Labyrinth who's holding his own eyeballs. Yes, the pale man. Yes, and, and but what is so interesting is that, in as you go further and further out, you evoke more and more the humanity mm-hmm. within. Well, I I I have I have a real belief. I mean, it's very hard to explain this without a little bit of autobiography because as a child, I explored the, the sewers of my city, of Guadalajara. We, a group of friends and I uh, took to the tunnels under the city in the sewage with lamps and, and flashlights, and, and we explored them. Essentially, we crossed the city from side to side a couple of times. No wonder you like Drood. Yes, of course, <laughs> and, 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 and because I lived Drood. And 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 w- because Guadalajara, in the middle of the of the Christian wars in the uh, after the revolution where uh, Christianity was outlawed, a lot of people uh, created tunnels to communicate between houses to carry communion, and my grandmother used to tell me all these stories about that time, and and uh, many of them connect to the sewers. So we found old tunnels. We found areas that were made of stone in the middle of the sewer system that ended up in blind alleys. Uh, I saw large things decomposing in those sewers that I I don't know what they were, probably big dogs, I don't know. But uh, they, this uh, absolutely is ingrained in my brain. And, and I believe as a metaphor, I use in Hellboy and Blade in Pan's Labyrinth, in Devil's Backbone, Mimic. Uh, every movie almost I've ever done uh, has a moment in which you uh, are a, a sort of, a, you have an Orphaic uh, 
journey into the underground, into the nether worlds, and 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 in under the city, under the uh, uh, veneer of civilization, underneath it, literally, there is a a place festering with nightmares and monsters and 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 uh, and creatures, you know, and and this is as true of the human mind as it is of literally geographically the places I I try I like to take the people through. You know, when somebody, somebody, some people say, uh, when they don't, when people don't like Pan's Labyrinth, when they want to be critical about it, they say, well, it's very easy to say reality is bad and fantasy is benign and beautiful. And I said, that's not the movie I made. You you watched the wrong movie. Because if you can tell me which of the three journeys to the underground that she takes is benign, I will give you a candy bar because the pale man, the frog, and the... Uh, and every excursion she does to the layer of the fawn, they are all extremely disturbing journeys into fantasy. But what I think is, is that she's not escaping the world. I, I am very vehement about this. She is making sense of the world through those fantasies. So the power that she witnesses or feels, uh, she tries to make logic uh, through these fantasies, uh, and 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 uh, we could talk about pants for many hours because it's a it's a movie f- rife uh, with a occult symbolism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I really carefully carefully put there. It's a it's a pagan riff on on Catholic myth <laughs> in in a, in a in a very odd way. But but I I think that uh, these are things that are natural to me because I, I think that. One of the most spiritual uh, emotions is fear. Fear gives you the humility in the soul to accept things bigger than you exist. You know, you, that's why everybody, when, when you're afraid, you pray to God. Because it, it, you are being, you're way over your head with fear. So I find fear very humbling. And I find it very necessary for a spiritual existence. But, uh, I, and I don't mean paralyzing fear. I, I, I think there is, there is a type of fear that just makes you cosmically humble. Uh, uh, that I really think is, is useful. It's, it allows you to abandon yourself to the universe. I know this sounds really crazy, but it's integral to the way I write or, or direct or create this world. This is the kind of fear that is... Um, only a, a flip of the switch away from awe. It is. It, it, I, the, the most mysterious and beautiful book in the Bible, which is, which is the book of Job, as, as, as oblique as it is to a lot of people, there are passages in that book that speak of a, an overwhelming truth. And I, I just remember God essentially telling Job, who do you think you are? You know, exactly... Why, why are you speaking back at me? Why? I mean, I mean, there is, uh, the uh, you know, and and you you can go to the Tao or the Sin, and the idea of abandoning yourself and not doing anything, just being at the mercy of the universe, you can only attain that state of not being by humility, and 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 a way of shocking humility on yourself is fear. You know, when you find yourself very arrogant a good, healthy dose of fear is going to cut you down to size, literally. You know, um, 
the scenes that that in this book with the Kelly and and mm-hmm. Zach are really interestingly powerful because you have this complete inversion of love and a perversion of love mm-hmm. and yet it's matched by this untouched untainted pure love yes and i think that's so it's so well handled because we can feel the that um mirror image of kelly's love meeting up yes. with zach's yes purity well this was instrumental uh chug chug uh, hogan was instrumental in fleshing this out because what i what i came with is the notion that comes from european vampiric lore uh, that the vampire when he resurrects the first uh, place he goes to is home to uh, vampirize and destroy the family nucleus now this is completely accepted european vampiric lore but uh, and i find it perverse and i explored it in chronos that you can love something that is undead and imperfect and somewhat terrifying but Chuck really, really articulated it well. The the best moments when it's articulated in the book where he says is essentially love perverted, is the the bizarro negative equivalent of love. Those passages are Chuck's, Mm. and he really makes sense of it. I cannot claim that. I I think he made it incredibly compelling uh, to read. Uh, what What I know is that I wanted the... To create a horror story about maternal instinct. <laughs> you know, I really wanted to... Because we we experience it. There is a part of motherhood that suffocates us as children, you know? And I really can only tell that without becoming, you know, without creating characters out of Tennessee Williams, you know, making them grander than grand, uh, this pulpish genre fiction allows you to say... This is the ultimate terrible mother that is doing this out of a genuine need for the child, except that the genuine need for the child may be uh, nourishment or maybe the thirst of destroying. And, and, and it speaks about something primal. I think that uh, there's something really deeply Freudian, Jungian, uh, of the bonds of a father and a son are bonds that, you know, the Greeks understood in their mythology. They are bonds that are love and the, the wish to destroy each other. And these are very powerful things to explore in vampiric myth. You know, there's some there's a word you use in this book, and I think it's so wonderful. And it really, um, I think, speaks to what makes this book both frightening and scary, and that's unheimlich. Yes, the uncanny. The uncanny. Yeah, I, I mean, the... the, the the idea that that uh, the uncanny is a, a concept that uh, Freud articulates it beautifully by using uh, Hoffman's *The Sandman*, mm-hmm. which is one of the most terrifying uh, stories ever written. But uh, the the it's it's very easy once you read the examples given and uh, to understand the uncanny. It's very hard to explain. Mm. It's very hard to explain. I. The way I can explain it to the best of my abilities is is to simply say that the uncanny is when things that shouldn't be are and when things that should be are not. When, when, when literally we see the rules, the essential rules 
violated by not by great distance. But I mean, any variation in the invariable causes great terror. You know, so uh, let me give you an example uh, briefly. But uh, you know, part of the horror works in context. Uh, the easiest example is a man alone in a room hears a knock on the door. Well, that's not horror. But if you say the last man in the world, which is the famous, the shortest horror story ever written, the last man in the world sits alone in a room, he hears a knock on the door. That's a horror story. But when I say that violating uh, unbi uh, uh, principles that are absolutely permanent, you don't need to do it by much. Let's say that you you just say, you look at, you turn your head, you hear a noise, you turn your head, and your mother is floating six inches above the floor. Not five meters, not 10 meters, six inches above the floor. This little gap violates principles <laughs> that, are, that are absolutely insanely firm in our minds, and horror ensues. So the uncanny is, is just the things that are that shouldn't be, really. One of the uh, things that you guys do in this book, mm -hmm. I think that's so, uh, makes the, both the books so compelling, is to con convey this sense of unstoppable dread. We, there, and you do this in part, but as you subsume law and order, you know, with the Canary Project mm -hmm. and the emergency op center and what mm -hmm. happens with the cops, mm -hmm. this kind of like, it, it creates a, a really terrorizing dread that's kind of hard to fight and, and it's some it's a uh, it's just a shade away from just depressing <laughs> yeah well because because what what is being subverted is so intimate you know we we really in the first book we decompose the family you know so that's 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 really the core of it all when you when you cannot find solace in your parents or your children or your brother or your sister when those things uh, turn around and you see a different face. Uh, it's absolutely the worst horror, and, and and you feel lost. You feel like you know, you are adrift in a sea of blackness. You know, when dad's uh, in the doghouse. When dad, when dad's in the doghouse, chained by your mother, yeah. <laughs> and 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 if if she lets him in, he's gonna eat the kids, essentially. And and uh, or uh, another another. Um, thing is that we corrupt uh, the institutions you know mm -hmm. we we then go out and, and and say the police cannot do anything the the army cannot do anything uh, because we're rotting from inside out and that's a really good metaphor for today i think <laughs> and it's because we there is there is no one to turn to because at the end of the day we're doing this ourselves and and these two books uh, uh, try to talk about a, a, an anxiety that is very very modern. You know, I, I think when you read H. G. Wells uh, I, and you read Jules Verne, you're seeing two sides of science fiction that are completely the opposite. You know, Jules Verne believes and is fascinated by technology. H. Uh, G. Wells completely distrusts technology. But what is compelling is that. In both instances, both men are talking about things that are uh, uh, of their time. 
And I think the strain and the fall, we really made it very clear. We wanted it to be vampire novels of their time. Talking about anxieties of displacement, anxieties of inadequacy, anxieties of uh, how easy it is to destroy a world so modern. Uh, we, we wanted to, I mean, look, look at what happened to the economy. O- overnight, these things were rotting away from, on, from inside. And by the time we turned around and said, wait a minute, the whole world was in bankruptcy. And it took away everything that we held sacred. So it's not exactly fiction in that sense. <laughs> it happens. Now, you're working on a lot of projects, and I wanted to just ask you about some of them. Mm-hmm. The one, I was looking at my um, illustrated Donald Grant limited edition copy of At the Mountains of Madness, yes. and it had these incredible vistas yes. in it, and I just thought, oh my, I see why that could be 3D. Yes, I think that, uh, I think that a, a good axiom uh, that was validated by, uh, by Jim Cameron in Avatar is that absolutely, if you want a great romp, a great adventure, 3D is a really good way to go because it's, uh, it's, uh, it really transports you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the screen becomes a panoramic window into another, a different place. And, and I think uh, The Mountains of Madness is uh, the biggest monster in The Mountains of Madness is uh, the shadows within the city, you know, the, the places that remain darkened in the city you know the the things that are unseen the the menace of architecture that has nothing to do with mankind so it's a big challenge but something that i'm very very compelled i love i like uh, i i am very very empathic to lovecraft's uh, fear of the immensity of the cosmos i i really i really think he 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 has a he's hitting on on a on a vein, a pulse that m- mankind has when when we find ourselves alone with the dark sky, it is humbling, as we said, and and and, and completely scary. And and Lovecraft taps into that. So mountains is very dear to my heart. I, I'm curious about the emotional content of, of of that piece. Well, you know, there is really no, almost no emotional content to speak of in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is, uh, one of the remarkable aspects of, of the book is to take um, to take what it is, a very dry scientific document, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, uh, shockingly, start describing things that are impossible, <laughs> because uh, the document's veracity lends uh, those descriptions uh, a patina, Mm-hmm. Of of truth of mm-hmm. uh, plausibility, uh, and I think that uh, the movie uh, cannot be sustained in such a dry manner, mm-hmm. because it would end up being uh, uh, truly impossible to sustain uh, such a scope, such a uh, enormous narrative drive. Not to talk about the f- factibility of uh, financing such a film, <laughs> uh-huh. but so we 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 had to invent the dynamics between the characters, you know. Danforth, Dyer, uh, Adwood—you know all the all the the characters. Uh, their their dynamics in the book are almost non non-existent. So we we wanted to create, or I wanted to create, a story about one character losing everything, losing absolutely everything. Uh, this sense of despair you get at the end of Arthur Gordon Pym or 
at the end of At the Mountains of Madness where our heroes have faced the immensity of the world and, and have come out essentially uh, mad because they, they have nothing to hold on to anymore. And uh, I went through it in the kidnapping of my father, strangely enough. When, 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 you are, when your world is um, hit by such a thing, my father was kidnapped in 98. Uh, How did this happen? Uh, well, it happened in Mexico, and, and he was uh, captured for 72 days. And the best way I could describe it to my wife is uh, there was no difference between inside and outside of my house anymore. I didn't feel any privacy. I felt my house was completely permeable. My room was not... like I felt the walls were made of paper. And I think that uh, characters are faced with great horror, like uh, like uh, Arthur Gordon Pym or, or Dyer or Danforth in The Mountains of Madness. They really cannot operate anymore with notions of inside, outside, night, day, good, bad. It's You are, you are devastated by an overwhelming sense of uh, uh, doom, you know? And, and, and I think that was, that was really very, very much true in my case. I've been speaking with Guillermo del Toro. His new novel is The Fall. Thank you for speaking with me, Guillermo. A pleasure. Let's go tour the man cave. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.